We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. If you missed Cooley on Friday, go listen to it. Um, it was good to have him back. Uh, he'll be with us periodically over the summer, and then we'll get back into a more regular schedule once uh, the season begins. Uh, for those that suggested that I should have allowed him to go a little bit longer uh, on his initial story as to why he hadn't been on the podcast, you're right. I just, in the moment, for whatever reason, didn't think anybody was buying it. But many of you did, hook, line, and sinker. Um, so I should have uh, extended that for a longer period of time. No guests on the show today. Uh, a brief show, not a long show today. I want to start with this. So somebody sent this to me over the weekend. I had missed it. I guess it was from last week. It was a ranking of the offensive lines in the NFL from 1 to 32 put out by Pro Football Focus. Uh, if you had said to me before I read it, because I was not thinking necessarily where is Washington going to be on this, but somebody sent it to me and said, here's a link, tell me what you think. If somebody had said, where do you think Washington is on the list of you know, r- uh, offensive lines ranked uh, 1 through 32, I would have guessed somewhere between, I don't know, 16 and 20, somewhere, not top half of the league, but maybe, you know, not the bottom third of the league either. You know, they did add some, you know, players. They added Leno, who's going to start at left tackle more likely than not. They drafted Cosme. Um, I think he'll battle it out with Cornelius Lucas at right tackle. Uh, They added Eric Flowers, um, and they've got him penciled in at left guard, and they've got an all-pro in Brandon Sheriff coming back and a solid center in Chase Rouillet. And, you know, the truth is they appear, at least on paper right now, to be deeper than they've been in recent years. Uh, I think they like Schweitzer. I'll tell you a guy I think they actually like is David Sharp, who played some at the end of last year um, and his versatility. Um, Sadiq Charles is interesting if he can stay healthy. But that's where I would guess um, they would have come in. Um, But the reason this person sent this to me isn't because they were somewhere between, you know, 16 and 21. It's because they landed at number three on the list of the best offensive lines projected 2021. Look, I understand these lists. This is pro football focus. They evaluate every single player and every single play. Um, 32 teams are contracted with pro football focus to utilize either all of or just some of their data. To me, I've said it many times, it's a tool 
Um, uh, it's another in a long list of, of tools that you can use to evaluate, but it's not the end-all be-all. It can't be because they don't know for sure what the responsibility of every player on every play is. This isn't a sport where every single thing is measured accurately or with a number um, because you don't know what the responsibilities, what responsibilities of said player is. But number three, behind Dallas at number two and New Orleans at number one, both of whom have very good offensive lines. Tampa came in at four. Let's not forget Tampa's offensive line, especially Wirfs and um, Donovan Smith, dominated Washington's defensive front in the playoffs. Dominated it. Uh, so um, they were fourth. Baltimore was fifth. Cleveland six. KC seven. New England eight. The Rams nine. And the Packers ten. I'm scratching my head because the one team that I would have thought would have been in easily in the top 10 would have been Indianapolis with debatably one of the top three to five players in the game when we're not listing quarterbacks, and that is Quentin Nelson. Now, they lost Costanzo um, last year, uh, but Ryan Kelly, Quentin Nelson, you know, Kelly's one of the two or three best centers in the game. Quentin Nelson f- flat out is the best interior offensive lineman in the NFL, and it's not even close. So I was surprised Indy wasn't um, a little bit higher on the list. But this is what I wanted to get to. So who knows when we start playing games um, where Washington's offensive line, you know, really is. And we'll know, you know, certainly by observation if it's playing well or not. Um, but given that Washington's defensive line is considered to be top five, pretty much universally now, Washington's defensive line has been given sort of top five labeling. If you end up with a top five offensive line as well, Washington's going to win a lot more games than it loses, if that's true. If they have a top five offensive line, top five defensive line, they're going to be a playoff team and a playoff team that can do damage regardless of who their quarterback is. You know, there aren't many examples, and it's hard to go back and find, you know, any sort of rankings of O-line and D-line. You, there's plenty of data for overall team defense and team offense. But I just started thinking about some of the, you know, co- teams that had okay quarterbacking, you know, nothing great quarterbacking-wise, but had terrific defensive and offensive lines. You know, the 1980 Raiders um, come to mind. Even the 1983 Raiders come to mind. You know, the 80 Raiders still had Shell and Upshaw to go along with, you know, a guy like Ted Hendricks who was still on the team uh, in 1980. And then you got Howie Long added to the 83 team with Reggie Kinlaw and Greg Townsend, etc. to go with great offensive line play. And Jim Plunkett was the quarterback. The Giants teams of the mid to late 80s, early 90s, you know, their 86 team had Phil Simms as their quarterback. A good quarterback, not a Hall of Fame quarterback. Great year, no doubt. 
Um, and maybe you would rank Phil Simms sort of ahead of the Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke situation, as maybe you would Jim Plunkett. But they had multiple pro bowlers on their offensive line, including, you know, Bart Oates and Brad Benson. And defensively, along their defensive line, we know what they had in, in Lawrence Taylor and Harry Carson, but they also had Jim Burton, Leonard Marshall, and George Martin up front, you know, in a 3-4 base. Remember, they also won the Super Bowl with Hostetler. Hostetler would be more of a comp for Ryan Fitzpatrick the year they won it. There are other teams, too, that come to mind. Um, you know, the Ravens of 2000 obviously didn't have great quarterback play with Trent Dilfer necessarily, but they had Jonathan Ogden uh, on that offensive line, which was a good offensive line. The, the issue really with them more than anything else is that their D-line was just okay. Their strength defensively, and they were a great defensive team, was with Ray Lewis and with their secondary. And by the way, they were tremendously, tremendously well coached with Marvin Lewis um, as their coach that year. So those are just some of the teams that come to mind that had you know, top five-ish offensive lines, top five defensive Lines that won Super Bowls anyway with not great quarterbacking. Um, you know, those are sort of the ones that go, oh, wait, Kevin, Kevin, are you forgetting the most obvious? No, I'm not forgetting. I just saved it for last. I wanted to make you sweat it. The 87 and the 91 Washington football team, Washington Redskins, because they were the Washington Redskins in 1987 and 1991. Yes. They are excellent examples of teams that had top five-ish offensive and defensive lines with you know quarterbacks who are not going to be confused with great quarterbacks. You know, not all-time greats. Mark Rippon had a great year, had a great postseason. Doug Williams shared the starting quarterback responsibilities in '87 with Jay Schrader. You know, neither one of them would be confused with a Hall of Famer. Doug played an incredible Super Bowl and had a clutch performance in the playoff game at Soldier Field. Had, you know, a couple of really good games, including the season finale that year at Minnesota. Um, but obviously, those teams, those 87 and 91 teams, had exceptional offensive lines and defensive lines. You know, in 87, you had Dexter, you had Charles Mann, you had Butts, uh, Dave Butts, and you still had Daryl World Grant. Offensive line-wise, you still had Jake and Grimm and May. You also had R.C. Thielman and you had Rollo um, playing left guard because, remember, Bostic got hurt and Grimm was playing center that particular year for, for some of it. In, 80, in 91, you had Jim Lachey as part of that great offensive line um, with you know the likes of Bostic and Schlereth and Jake and, and Rollo. And then D-line-wise, maybe the underrated portion of the team, but a great defensive line with Mann and Fred Stokes and Jumpy Gathers as the defensive ends and Eric Williams and Tim Johnson inside. An exceptional D-line. They were top five-ish, yes. And they had Mark Rippon at quarterback. Rippon had a phenomenal season, a great season, an all-pro season um, or a Pro Bowl season and was the MVP of the Super Bowl. But Mark Rippon, we know what he was. You know, he was not, you know, ever going to be in the elite category or even in the next-tier category. So anyway, 
If they end up with a top five offensive line, I would be very surprised. I would not, you know, prior to this season right now, say Washington's offensive line is is third or top five. Again, I would have guessed it without going through every single team's offensive line, which is what you really have to do. In their own division, in their own division, the Cowboys' offensive line is clearly better. The Giants' offensive line is not. The Giants' uh, weakness is their offensive line. The Eagles' offensive line, with Lane Johnson and Brandon Brooks back, and Andre Dillard, who was a first-rounder from 2018 or 2019, I think it was 2019 actually, uh, on paper, the Eagles' offensive line could be better than Washington's offensive line, just in the division. So um, I- I'm not going to sit here and say that Washington's got a top five-ish or top ten-ish offensive line. I'm just saying that if pro football focus is right, they're going to win a shitload of games in 2021. It was a busy weekend in sports. Much more on that coming up after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I watched a lot of sports on TV. Uh, it's late June. There shouldn't be a lot to watch, but it was hot outside. I gave myself a break from 
the sport that is diminishing returns for me right now, which is golf. And I watched a lot of sports this weekend. I watched a lot of the golf last night. That was incredible, the eight-hole playoff, um, in which CBS uh, didn't give you the playoff record in terms of the number of sudden-death holes uh, of all time um, until uh, Harris English and Kramer Hickok were on their seventh sudden death hole you didn't know what the record was I don't think they knew what it was and then they finally on the seventh playoff hole put up the list of the all-time longest playoffs it's 11 holes back in 1949 that's the longest in sudden death playoff holes this one tied for second there have been other eight hole sudden death finishes Harry English finished off Kramer Hickok with a birdie putt uh, on the eighth playoff hole. It was very dramatic um, and uh, was a lot of fun to watch. Um, I watched that. I watched soccer, which I'm going to spend a little bit of time on. I promise very little. I watched the NBA all weekend long. I watched the Nats all weekend long. Um, and I just watched right here in my studio Francis Tiafo upset the number four seed at Wimbledon, Stefanos Tsitsipas the guy that got to the final and lost to Djokovic at the French Open in that epic match. Francis Tiafo, for those of you who don't know, is 23 years old. He's ranked 57th in the world, and he's from College Park. He was a part of that huge College Park tennis facility that they have out there that's produced Tiafo and other uh, players as well. There's a, It's become a big-time tennis facility out in College Park. I think they built that thing 10 years ago something like 10 years ago, um, and uh, Tiafo is the first major player to be produced out of that tennis center. So good for him. He's 23. He's the first player since 2004, the first American since 2004 to beat a top five player at a major. That's pretty incredible. It's been 17 years since a U.S. men's tennis player has knocked off a top five player at a major. Uh, good for Francis Tiafo. Congratulations to him. Um, so I watched a lot of soccer this weekend, uh, and this is the reason why. Simply put, I'm intrigued that the rest of the world is watching um, Belgium-Portugal as an example yesterday. Um, in Belgium, okay, 82.5% of the available televisions were tuned in to Belgium-Portugal. Okay, 1.5 million viewers and a roughly 133,000 internet users. Um, and then something called Avio, I don't know what that is. Um, the rest of the world yesterday consumed Belgium and Portugal more than any other sporting event this entire year. So other than the Super Bowl globally, yesterday's Belgium-Portugal match may have been the, the most watched sporting event. I don't know that for fact. I just know how important it was to the rest of the world. Um, it, it was massive because it's the number one ranked team in the world, Belgium, who, by the way, is not even the favorite in this tournament, against Portugal, the defending champions, the defending Euro Cup champions, who have Ronaldo. 
So it was a major heavyweight matchup. I watched a lot of that game yesterday, and Belgium won it one to nothing. And I bet Belgium before this tournament. I bet them at plus five fifty to win the whole thing before the tournament started. And I bet them uh, two days ago at plus seven hundred. They're actually a longer shot to win it. Now that they're in the final 16, I guess they weren't very impressive in group stage and other teams were. Um, But they pulled off the win over Portugal. They're into the quarterfinals. I just find the fact that the rest of the world finds it so fascinating um, that I want to give it a shot. And I've given it a shot many times over the last, call it 10 years, World Cups and Euro Cups in particular. World Cups, definitely. Um, I don't love the game. It, I find it to be a hard watch at times. You know, the, um, the drama of the fake injuries um, drives me crazy. I mean, I, I just don't – I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to draw fouls. They're trying to draw, you know, yellow and red cards. They're, gonna, they're trying to draw all that stuff. I just – I can't stand to watch it. You know, half the time there's barely any contact – and, you know, 25% of the time, there's no contact. And 25 per, 25% of the time, it would be like a, a solid tackle in the NFL. Not a big hit, not a blow-up hit, just a solid, you know, physical tackle. That's more like 10% of the time, actually. So I hate that. I hate when it looks like you're gearing up for maybe a shot on goal, and then they turn around and they kick it backwards, and then that guy kicks it backwards, and then it ends all the way back up with the you know all, all the way back to the goalie. I, I don't I don't like that. There's not enough action, and that's such the typical American response. But I, I do appreciate the skill and the athleticism. Look, I'm a basketball fan. I love basketball. I played basketball. I've coached basketball. Um, I think basketball players are the greatest all around athletes. Um, that there are, but soccer players are really, really skilled and athletic. There's no doubt. I get that part of it. I'm sure there's a lot of strategy involved, and I can see it on some of the corner kicks and some of the penalty kicks and some of the attacks on occasion. But for the most part, you know, I think the results, not necessarily, not, not necessarily like hockey, are super random, but. You know, in games that end up 0-0 or 1-0, I mean, you know, the the ball went in the net instead of hitting the post. Port- Portugal hit the post um, on, on a late shot attempt. They had another opportunity right in front of the goalie, and the goalie made a great save. Um, anyway, I, I, I kind of like it. I don't love it, but I kind of like it. But I think it's just that it's so important to the rest of the world and and you can see how important this is as the match uh, as the matches are going on. Um, tomorrow, uh, England plays Germany at Wembley. That is a massive, globally consumed sporting event tomorrow at noon Eastern. Um, you know, six o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock, rest of the world. Uh, I think that's what time it starts here, noon Eastern. Um, anyway. I wanted to mention this one thing. Richie Burke, who is the head coach of the Washington Spirit, the women's professional team in town, came on my radio show this morning. He's come on the radio show a lot um, during these events over the years. He's a friend. Um, He's been here in D.C. for the last 25-plus years. He's from Liverpool, played professionally, um, and has coached professionally for some time. 
And uh, I was curious about a couple of things. I was curious as to um, how important this is to fans and players over there vis-a-vis this. Is Manchester United more important to players and fans or is playing for your country more important? He said for fans, it's not even close. Like you could be a Chelsea fan, but the bottom line is uh, if you're German or if you're English, you're rooting for your country at these big events. These are the things that matter. That's the opposite from us. You know, no Lakers fan is going to say, hey, these, N- you know, these NBA playoffs are great, but I can't wait for the Olympics. We're just the opposite of that. The rest of the world is all into these events. And maybe if we were so invested in a sport that was global, like if our number one sport, football, was a global sport, maybe it would be different, but it's not a global sport. Basketball is a global sport, but it pales in comparison to soccer. It may be number two globally if cricket isn't, and I think actually cricket is the number two, basketball is the number three. Um, But if basketball um, were as important for the rest of the world as soccer is, maybe we would feel differently, but I don't think we would. Um, anyway, that's it on soccer. Listen to my interview with Richie Burke. He's great. Uh, he answered a lot of questions, um, for me. If you're into soccer, you can find that, um, at the team980.com or the Odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y app. Uh, the NBA playoffs this weekend, uh, Friday night, I gave out here on the podcast, the Bucks minus the eight, minus the eight and a half. That was the biggest blowout of the postseason. Um, and then on Saturday night, we got the Suns and the Clippers. And that was really an intense game that I enjoyed, even though offensively it was one of the worst we've seen in the postseason. Actually, it was the lowest scoring NBA game of not only the postseason, but the regular season as well. Actually, I don't know if it was the lowest scoring. It was the lowest scoring winner. The Suns won the game 84 to 80. In the fourth quarter, the Suns outscored the Clippers 15 to 14. In that fourth quarter, the teams combined to go 7 of 38, 0 for 9 on threes. The Clippers had 12 opportunities to take a lead in the second half. They never did. On those 12 shot attempts, they were 0 for 12 on shots that would have given them the lead. It was an intense defensive game. Both teams were exhausted. There were a couple of big takeaways, though, for me. Number one, DeAndre Ayton is blowing up into a star player. The number one pick from 2018 out of Arizona, you know, involved in a lot of the Arizona controversial stuff. Um, He has had himself a coming-out party in this postseason. In Game 4 on Saturday night, DeAndre Ayton in 41 minutes, 19 points, 22 rebounds, 4 blocked shots. He was dominant. By the way, 19 points on 8 of 14 from the floor. He's shooting in this series 69.4% percent averaging 20.3 points per game and averaging 13 and a half rebounds per game. He has been spectacular in the postseason um, as a whole, but he is really, really 
coming out in this particular series against the Clippers who don't have a big-time center, although Zubats has played a lot, and I thought he played very well the other night. Um, another takeaway from this game on Saturday night was the um, end of this game in which the Clippers were trying to intentionally miss free throws, which I thought they were doing too early. And one of the guys that went to the line um, who had to try to intentionally miss a free throw so that they could grab an offensive rebound was DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. Cousins apparently did not know the rule that the ball has to hit the rim. So he fired it off the glass and attacked the ball. No, it's got to hit the rim, Boogie. Uh, That's amazing to me that a guy that's been in the league that long did not really know the rule um, about the ball hitting the rim. Um, And then there was just one other thing real quickly from that game on Saturday night. So in game three or game two, there was a controversial replay on a ball that got knocked out of bounds and they went and looked to see who touched it last when the defender had clearly stuck his hands in, knocked the ball out of the bounds, out of bounds. Um, it was a Patrick Beverly play on Devin Booker. And they went to the replay and found that the last touch was actually just barely Devin Booker's finger on a play that would have never, ever been reviewed in the past because it was one of those plays, uh, the ball handlers advancing the ball, defensive player reaches in, knocks it out, Uh, It's the offensive team's ball. It's always been that way. If we had had replay in the past, a lot of those plays perhaps would have been overturned. But on Saturday night, on a huge play, Batum, Nicholas Batum, knocked the ball out of Mikhail Bridges' hand. And it was exactly the same play as in game two. And they did not go to the replay and the Clippers coaches Ty Lu were like are you going to replay this one are we going to we got to we got to get this one replayed and they did not choose to replay that even though by the way um the replay uh in the, the Suns game benefited um the um the Clippers they did not use replay here Um, to confirm if the ball got knocked out uh, by Batum or Bridges. Anyway, uh, the Clippers are done. Kawhi Leonard's injury continues to be a mystery. Um, Skip Bayless reported over the weekend that it's uh, a serious injury and that Kawhi Leonard's got issues with the way the Clippers' medical staff handled this. Sound familiar? That's sort of what happened in San Antonio. Um, and led him to want out of San Antonio. He's a free agent. He can go wherever he wants to go when this season uh, is over. And then there was the game last night between Milwaukee and Atlanta. Trey Young got hurt in this game in the second half after having a great game through two and a half uh, quarters. Ended up with 35 points on 12 of 23 shooting, 6 of 14 from behind the arc. Um And uh, the Hawks had a big lead early, and then they had a seven-point lead with seven and a half minutes to go. But Chris Middleton, who's really had an up and down, more down than up postseason for Milwaukee, man, did he catch fire. I mean, it was heat check after heat check. He scored 20 in the fourth quarter. He scored 20 of Milwaukee's 30 points in the fourth quarter. He scored 17 in the final seven and a half minutes of the game on seven of nine shooting as the Bucks, who were down 95 to 88, uh, outscored Atlanta 
25 to 7 to end the game and it was pretty much all Middleton. So the Bucks are up 2-1 in that series. A lot of people are saying, "Ah, oh, the Bucks are going to win this series. They're the better team." Well, Atlanta was down 2-1 to Philadelphia also. Um if Trey Young's hurt, they're in big trouble, clearly. Uh but um if he's if the injury's not that serious, I still think Atlanta's capable of winning another game or two. Anyway, uh, that's your NBA weekend. Um, You get a game tonight. Phoenix can get to the NBA Finals after 10 years of not making the postseason. This will really shake up uh, the the hard and fast rules when it comes to picking NBA championship teams. Um, Phoenix hasn't been to the postseason in 10 years. They were 19-63 and two years ago. They don't have an obvious top five player on their team. Although Paul, Booker, and Ayton are all really, really good. Um, Phoenix is a five and a half point favorite tonight uh, to get to the NBA Finals uh, with a win over the Clippers. Um, the Nats got two out of four from the Marlins over the weekend. I, it was, I was sort of hoping they'd get three out of four, uh, but they got two out of four. Two two run homers yesterday, huge. Um, for them and a good outing from Max Scherzer. Now really starts the stretch of schedule that I'm not going to say is going to make or break their chances to make a legitimate postseason run. But when you're playing basically, um, you know, three, four of the best five or six teams in the sport, Tampa, Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Francisco. San Diego twice, by the way. Seven games against the Padres. With a game today or tonight against the Mets mixed in, um, this is a big stretch for the Nats. A huge stretch for the Nats. They are going to play 14 games before the All-Star break and three after the All-Star break against exceptional competition. So the next 17... You know, going eight and nine, nine and eight, kind of a thing keeps them very much in the hunt if they're still right around five hundred. Um, but something much worse could take them out of it um, by the time we get to the middle of July, uh, and that's when all of this will end on the other side of the All Star break. But a good win for them yesterday to salvage what could have been a disastrous weekend against the Marlins. Um, they did lose Victor Robles for how long? Who knows? Um, but uh, Scherzer pitched well, um, a lot of pitches in six innings, but still just one earned run, and then the bullpen did an outstanding job. And again, the two two-run homers broke it open in the sixth um, by Trey Turner and Josh Bell. I-, I did notice something in watching the game yesterday. The Nats have the fewest number of runs after the fifth inning in Major League Baseball. Um, and that can explain a lot of why they're hovering right around 500. Yesterday, though, in the sixth, four runs, the decisive sixth inning. That was huge, and they get the win. Um, all right, uh, other than that, um, the last thing that I was just going to mention is I appreciate a lot of the feedback from a lot of you on what I tweeted out yesterday. I tweeted out that I had been watching yesterday morning the NFL Network, and they had Roger Staubach's A Football Life on. And it was part of a, an entire day dedicated to the da- to uh, to the Dallas Cowboys, you know, the all day long football life specials on Staubach, on Jimmy Johnson, on Emmett Smith, on Michael Irvin, on Troy Aikman, on Jerry Jones, et cetera, et cetera. And I tweeted out yesterday that the um, uh, that Roger Staubach, for me in my lifetime uh, of watching the Skins 
is the most disliked but also the most respected opponent, individual player, or you know, opponent, player, coach, or owner of all time. A lot of you responded with LT and a lot of other names on the list. Um, but for me, it's Staubach, because Staubach broke our hearts more than anybody did. And Staubach truly was despised by Redskins fans at the height of the rivalry in the 70s and 80s. Staubach ended up retiring after the 79 season, but he was despised. But he was also one of those guys that when his career was over, I think all football fans, including Skins fans, truly respected. LT, I never felt like he was despised. I think we were always in awe of LT. He was so great. And I don't know. I, I felt like there were other players that were or and or coaches that were despised more than Staubach. Again, despised and respected in Staubach's case, but a lot of you sent me a, a long list. You know, starting with Andre Dirty Waters, the defensive back for Philadelphia. A lot of you had him in there after LT. A lot of you had Deshaun Jackson. Yeah, Deshaun Jackson was despised, but he also played for us. Um, a lot of you had Jason Witten. I never considered Jason Witten to be a despised player or disliked player. More Tony Romo, maybe. Um, more Michael Irvin, maybe. Um, in terms of Cowboys, maybe Pearson or Dorsett Irvin. Uh, Randy White, Harvey Martin, Harvey Martin threw uh, on that infamous uh, 1979 December 35-34 loss at Texas Stadium, threw the funeral wreath into the locker room. Man, that was the height of the rivalry. Buddy Ryan, I hated. I've mentioned this many times. I think for me as a fan, the best revenge game of all time, the game that I wanted so badly, um, was the playoff game following the body bag game in 1990. Playoff game came in January of 91. Um, but after that Monday night, November 1990 game, when they were carting people off and the skins got absolutely blown out and embarrassed by the Eagles to come back a month and a half later at the vet in Philadelphia with Buddy Ryan essentially talking as if, you know, um, the matchups down the road against the 49ers, um, you know, uh, you know, or, or the, uh, anybody else that they were looking forward to in, in the postseason. He totally overlooked Washington. And Gibbs went in there like he always did on the road with a smarter game plan, a smarter coaching staff, a smarter team, and a better team, and kicked his ass. 20-6, to six, the game was never close. There was a controversial fumble early in the game. Um, but bottom line was Washington won the game, uh, and, uh, and Buddy Ryan got fired. Uh, he, he took his ass and ran off the field, didn't shake Joe Gibbs's hand at the end of that. I hated Buddy Ryan, hated him. Um, but, uh, a lot of you weighed in on that. And, um, I think it's one of those interesting conversations, you know, ranking rivals, you know, all three of the NFC East teams are obviously super rivals of Washington's football team. I still put Dallas number one. I don't know who's number two or number three. I think Philly's more number two and the Giants are more number three, even though Washington had a much hotter rivalry with the Giants than they've ever had with the Eagles. Um, the, the rivalry between the Giants and the Skins in the 80s and 90s was off the charts. Washington's never had that really with Philadelphia. They had it, obviously, with Dallas for multiple decades. 
um, with both teams, you know, at the top of the sport. They had it with the Giants, with both teams at the very elite levels of the sport. You know, the truth is Washington and Philadelphia have been good at the same time. You know, I just mentioned they played in the postseason in 1990. Um, But they've never been at the highest levels of the sport at the same time. 91, um, Philadelphia was... Uh, was Philadelphia in the postseason? No, they weren't even in the postseason in 91, right? Atlanta beat New Orleans, uh, Dallas beat Chicago, and then Dallas beat Detroit, and Washington beat the Falcons. So Philadelphia wasn't even in the postseason in 91. Um, And in 92 they were, but Washington didn't play. Philadelphia is the one team Washington's never had a rivalry with where the rest of the league said, oh, my God, they're they're playing for two or three straight years, massive games that matter. But I still think our fan base hates the Philadelphia Eagles and the Philadelphia Eagles fan base in particular. In terms of individuals, yes, Staubach's at the top of that list. I, I really think he is. But, again, it's odd because after his career, so respected, and he was a great player. He was such a great quarterback. Top 15 quarterback of all time. One of the great clutch quarterbacks of all time. And the best part about that um, NFL Network show is that Staubach gets really, really tense and competitive when asked about his memories of playing the Redskins. It's the best part of that uh, whole football life special if you're a Cowboys Redskins rivalry enthusiast. Um, anyway, uh, that's it. Uh, Maryland basketball fans, I guess we'll know more about Daryl Morcell later on today. Um, he's narrowed it down to Marquette, Arkansas, Louisville. Um, I've heard that he's going to Marquette, um, but I'm not sure about that. There's still the possibility he could come back to Maryland, and we're still waiting on the Wiggins thing. All right, that's it for the day. Tommy will be back with me tomorrow. Enjoy the day.